Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to the first installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series leading up to his event film this summer, Tenant. Today we are reviewing his very first film, Following. This is your co-host Corbin. And I'm Alan. And I said leading up to his brand new film tenant let's hope that remains the case we are reviewing amidst the turmoil of the coronavirus here in the united states and all the movies are getting canceled and i can't help but feel a little eerie that we just finished our terminator movie review series and that was all about judgment day and trying to stop judgment day yep and all of a sudden we're like under lockdown and we can't go places and it's like hmm okay yeah it's a very strange feeling it's kind of a weird coincidence too now following is probably a movie most people haven't heard of i would guess especially most christopher nolan fans anyway yeah i would say if you're like a pretty big christopher nolan fan you may have heard of it right whether right. or not you've seen it i don't know that one's probably uh going to have less people who have seen it than those who have even heard of it. But yeah, this is Christopher Nolan's very first movie. Um, people probably know him more by the Batman series, which would come a few films after this. But this was the one that he started pretty much his entire career off of. And I had not heard of this movie. I had some brief acquaintance with it, just maybe scrolling through his IMDb section I never seen any footage from this movie. I didn't know what the plot of this movie was about. When I clicked play, I was going in completely blind. Yeah, and I had seen this, oh man, it would have been about three years ago, I think. I think it was on Netflix for a short period of time, and that would be where I watched it. Um, I think I've seen it, yeah, I've seen it twice, because I watched it once on my own and then once with my cousin. So that was about three years ago. So I actually haven't seen it since then, but I remember back when I first watched it, I remember liking it. I remember being pretty good. And I think that was one of the very few films I had left to see before I had watched the entirety of Nolan's uh, filmography, which now I have, I've seen every single Nolan film at at this point, except for Tenet, of course. So, so yeah, I was kind of excited to go back and see what my thoughts are on following being a bit more mature in my, uh, I guess, in my critique or in my criticisms of films nowadays. I had forgotten you had seen this film before and, I didn't realize you had seen all of his oeuvre of films. I guess mm-hmm. I'm the quasi-newbie, you could call it, because I had never seen Following, and I had never seen Memento. I did see Insomnia once, many moons ago. Yeah. So I don't remember very much about that film. And of course, I've seen everything else. But yeah, I, I didn't realize you had already seen all of his films before this recording. Yeah, I think I finally... F- finally got through to watch them all when I was in college. I finally was able to get to a chance. Plus, they were also a bit more easily available, um, especially following, which is probably one of the more one of the ones that's kind of harder to get your hands on because it is not a big budget Hollywood flick like his later movies are. 
But yeah, again, for the time back a few years ago, it was available on Netflix. Didn't it have like a crazy small budget? Yes, uh, the budget was six thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like unheard of. Yeah, I think this is the smallest budget we've ever talked about on this podcast because last time we talked about a small budget would have been Krisha, which is about thirty grand. So this is a portion of that uh, of that budget from Krisha. So I, I believe this is the smallest we've ever talked about on this podcast. Yeah, it's about a fifth of Krisha's yeah. budget. It's which is crazy, and that's like that's really incredible, and especially. The movie we get, knowing it was made on that kind of a budget, is very impressive. You know, I wish I remembered what the budget was for. I mean, I'm sure we could look it up real fast. But for Guy and Madeline on a park bench. Yeah, that one was, that was small. pretty small, I remember. But I don't remember how much it was. I, Just I saying, remember that one was also a student film as well. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah, this, you know, Christopher Nolan was 28 years old when this movie came out in 99. So he was not a student at this time, I believe. Um, and I don't believe he was a film student either. I heard he was an English major like me, actually. Right. Yes, uh, I'm not entirely sure uh what his years were in college but i don't remember reading anything that was saying that this was filmed while he was in college but elaborating more on the budget that was actually one of the main things that no one was kind of pushing for with this film is he wanted to keep it as low budget as possible so mm. what he did is uh because he wanted to keep it the budget down as low as he could as possible he filmed it on 16 millimeter black and white film stock which is uh, probably the cheapest you could get at the time. Nowadays, I mean, nowadays it's gone all digital, so you don't need to invest in film stock. But because of this, because he wanted to keep the cost down, he would have heavy rehearsals of the scripts. And so that way they could only go in and film maybe one to two takes per scene. That way, you know, uh, they could keep things down. At the same time, though, he was only able to film on the weekends because he had a full-time job. Everybody who was acting had a full-time job. So the only available time for them to film was on was on the weekends. So because of this, uh, he said it was con he considers it to be more on the extreme end, even for a low-budget picture. Um, and so because of all this, it took him about a year to finish the movie, which I know this could be a very bad comparison, but when we talked about... Uh, Birdemic that had somewhat of a similar <laughs> thing that happened to it where they only were able to film on the weekends because everyone had a full-time job uh, but that one took two years to finish this one took only about a year so yeah that was that's probably one of the bigger aspects of the background info here is uh, how much money no one wanted to save when he was making it I was exactly thinking of Birdemic as well where they shot on the weekends it took them a while to shoot it we can say this is much more composed than Birdemic is. Yeah, I would. I, like I said, it's a bad comparison to make because <laughs> when it comes to quality, this one is far, far superior uh, when it comes to filmmaking artistry than Birdemic is. But yeah, there I would say that there in terms of how much budget and how it was made, there is a, a small comparison there. And according to my investigation, this movie came originally released in one theater and its widest release was two theaters. Yeah, I think it pretty much only played at film festivals. Um, kind of the same as with Krisha. It was 
its uh, theatrical release was pretty much limited to just the theaters and that were associated with film festivals. So yeah, it did actually win a couple of awards. Speaking of oh. film festivals, it got uh, best first feature uh, from San Francisco International Film Festival and got a nomination for the Grand Jury Prize at Slam Dance mm. Film Festival. Not not Sundance, I don't think, oh. but still pretty prestigious awards uh, given the a first time director. Yeah, that's very impressive. I can see why he would get that. Mm-hmm. And I did notice it's not even like really fair to say this, but opening weekend number 68 at the box office. Yeah, this is like a, this is a very similar situation to Krisha. Uh, you can look up what place it got in the in the box office. It's not going to tell you a whole lot about it because it's so low down on the list that all the big budget pictures at the time, in my mind, there's not really much of a comparison to make there. But in terms of money, I guess we can talk about that too. Uh, you did mention that it pretty much opened in one theater and its opening weekend earnings was about uh, $1,636. Uh, and then domestically, it made $48,482. Foreign markets, uh, $192,013 for a worldwide total of $240,495. But it should be noted too that this was released in, uh, it was, it's a British movie. So it was released probably uh, with those foreign markets. It was probably more popular over there, over the over the pond, than it was here in America. You got over two hundred thousand dollars for worldwide. Yeah. Wow, I didn't get that. I thought it was just still the forty eight thousand. That was what uh, Wikipedia and the numbers were telling me for mm. domestically. That was how much I got. I wonder if that's also a compilation of re releases, though. That's possible. It's very possible that. Um, for re-releases, given that it's Nolan's name, I'm sure that they did this at some point. It probably garnered a bit, a bit more money. Yeah, and it was in theaters for 39 weeks. Ah. Which, I mean, that's getting close to a full year. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. One thing about Nolan's films is they are re-released often, sometimes. They're released more than once because I know... I originally saw The Dark Knight when it premiered, and then I saw it a couple years later in IMAX release. So they sometimes compile the numbers together. Yeah. Didn't they do that same thing with Interstellar, where they had initially released it in IMAX, and then another film came in that was also an IMAX feature, and that one left, and then Interstellar came back into IMAX for... It's a few theaters. Yeah, I believe you're right. So his films, because they are so popular, they do get multiple runs at the theater. Okay, I guess we can go over scores real quick. Um, IMDb at a 7.5. Metascore at a 60, which is, eh, compared to the rest of the scores here, it's kind of eh. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 80 to 80, 80% for critic score, 85% audience score. There was no cinema score, which makes sense. It's a very small film. Um, and then Letterbox at a 3.5. So that's everything here seems to be rather respectable. Metascore seems to be the only one that's the outlier here with its uh, 60, which is definitely in the yellow. But still, very, very good scores critically overall. They are very good scores. And as Alan just said, the Metascore, technically this is his lowest Metascore for his entire filmography. Right. And this Metascore means generally mixed reviews, but... I mean, for a first film, and it's still not that low. It's de- it's definitely not bad. 
Yeah, I would say it's, I don't know what the cutoff is from green to yellow for Metascore, but uh, from what I remember, it looks to be pretty close to green. I think it's like 65%. I think it's 65 is when it becomes green. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it's somewhere around there. 63, 65. It's very yeah. close to green. But there's something else that I want listeners to keep in mind is that this is the year Shyamalan stormed the Oscars. That's right. Because we did just do our M. Night Shyamalan series last year. And M. Night Shyamalan, believe it or not, Shyamalan and Nolan are somewhat contemporaries of each other. Shyamalan came on the scene a little before Nolan did. But Shyamalan, with the Sixth Sense, was considered a wonderkind. And he got all these Oscar nominations. Now, Christopher Nolan would appear on the scene at the Oscars in similar fashion two years later with Memento. Now, not as many accolades as The Sixth Sense, but nevertheless, Christopher Nolan and Shyamalan were contemporaries. Now, that might shock some people right now because Shyamalan kind of went in weird directions. Go listen to our reviews. Christopher right. Nolan has gone on to just be considered one of the greatest directors ever. But nevertheless, that, that really did surprise me to think about that. And we also mentioned Damien Chazelle earlier who also, in similar fashion, had great acclaim with his very early films and is now also considered one of the great directors working, although he came on the scene much later. Right, yeah, he's a very recent example of a great filmmakers coming back onto the scene because uh, it seems like between uh, Christopher Nolan and Damien Chazelle, you have like the first movie that's more akin to a student film that's really, really small budget, um, and doesn't really get very far in the theaters, partly because it pretty much only plays at film festivals. And then their second feature, next thing they know, they're at the Oscars. Um, so it's, they, especially between Damien Chazelle and uh, Christopher Nolan, there seems to be some some similarities between the two of them and how, the, uh, how they make movies and how the, the reaction is because of that. And especially because both of their very first films are black and white. Yeah, and. There is some similarities, I would say, which I think is just kind of a trademark of first time directors when you're very young. Some of the shots I can say, like, I felt like they were very similar in a lot of ways, which I'm sure a lot of directors are that way with their very first film. Right. Although it should be noted that this one is more of a heavy uh, mystery, whereas Guy Madeline on a Park Bench is very much a romance musical. Very, very different genres. Very different genres, but nevertheless, they still are trying to evoke an older feeling. Yeah. Now, yep. this does also hold the record for Chris Nolan's shortest film. And it's true. maybe we should talk about that real quick. Can you call this? It's, it's, it's not feature length. I don't believe it's feature length. To me, this is like a very long short film. I can definitely see that it all, it does also kind of feel like that as well, uh, where it feels like a just a longer short film. I guess it kind of depends on what your definition of feature length is, because if you ask the Academy, feature length is 40 minutes or longer. What? Um, that's considered feature length by their standards. Um, um, that's also to win Oscar awards. I would still consider this, uh, I would still consider this feature length. I know probably one of the shorter movies we talked about is Nightmare, uh, before Christmas, I think that one's like an hour. Well, actually, it's about the same, about the same time runtime here because that one's I think about five minutes longer, discounting credits. So, 
Yeah, so they're roughly about the same. I would I would consider this uh, feature length, but the feeling that is evoked when I'm watching it, it does kind of feel like a short film, but extended to be um, closer to a feature than an actual short film. And I think a lot of writers do this on their first outing. Stephen King's first book, Carrie, was very short, and he was worried it was going to be too short, so he had to go back in and add, like, newspaper clippings he made up or interviews that he made up and with this film not counting the credits which are like all of a minute and a half long it's a 68 minute film yeah it's very short an hour and eight minutes is crazy uh which does make it you could rewatch it many times um and that would probably fit into your watching of like, you could watch this film like three times before you would be done with Interstellar, for instance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is ridiculous to think about. And it is kind of funny. I'm just bringing this up because Christopher Nolan's films will get progressively longer and they will just keep getting closer and closer to the three hour mark. Yeah. Yeah. I think right now he's pretty much stuck around the two hour, 30 minute mark. Um, there, of course, have been a couple of films that have either gone way short of that because i know dunkirk is like an hour 45 um but of course interstellar is like 245 i think Mm -hmm. so but they seem to stick around the two hour 30 minute mark nowadays the other records this film holds as far as this collection goes is it's clearly his lowest budget lowest Mm -hmm. opening smallest release smallest domestic gross and smallest worldwide gross so right it got seven records. I kept track. I put them all in a spreadsheet and I compared them all. And so this one tops the list for unique things. Mm-hmm. I did also notice that Christopher Nolan's uncle is in this film. Is he really? Uh, John Nolan is the policeman at the beginning and end of the film. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And we will also see him again in Batman Begins, which we'll talk That's about right. in a few weeks. Um, I also couldn't help but notice that the character Cobb, yep, he uh, that he's a thief, and a thief named Cobb also shows up in Inception. That's right. I do remember that was an intentional callback for Inception. That is cool uh, because they're the characters there are very similar in with their occupation. So, and I was surprised that uh, Alex Haw, who plays Cobb, this is the only film he's ever been in. And of course, uh, Christopher Nolan's now wife, but at then she was his girlfriend, Emma Thomas. She does appear in this film, actually. And of course, she produces every single film with him. Ah, I mean, that makes sense. Did you get to see the trailer for this movie, Alan? I mean, clearly there's no like theatrical trailer, but I saw an IFC re-release trailer. No, I have not. Yeah, the trailer's well edited. It makes the film look like a taut thriller. And based on the trailer, I would absolutely see it. It looks like a great noir. And I will say the trailer somewhat represents the film or inflates my expectations. So I wasn't glad about that. There's one last bit of trivia before we jump into the movie. Did you notice when they go to uh, the main character's apartment, there's a Batman symbol on the door? Uh I did notice that, yes. And I thought, wait a minute. Hmm. And as we know, Chris Nolan goes on to direct the Batman trilogy we'll be talking about. Right. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Following and you you want to go find it and get your hands on it, good luck. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen it and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. 
And then once you've seen the film, come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Struggling writer named Bill starts following people on the streets of London to get a sense of their lives after so long of being, I guess, not very successful. Uh, he starts to set rules for himself, but ends up breaking those when he begins following a suited man who we later find out is named Cobb. Cobb figures out pretty quickly what Bill is up to and confronts him, but offers him that he can make some money on the side via some burglary and maybe even be a part of these people's lives, but in a different way. It seems that Cobb, while stealing people's things, isn't what he's really after. What his plan is, at least what he explains to the audience and to uh, Bill, is that he likes being a part of these people's lives. At one point, even opening a bottle of wine and almost sharing it with, with Bill. However, what Bill has gotten himself into is a more of an elaborate scheme to blame the murder of a drug dealer's girlfriend on him. Bill starts a relationship with this same character, who is known as a blonde, only to find too late that she was in on that she was also in on Cobb's scheme to blame Bill for stealing a man's credit card. Cobb, however, holds all the cards here and has played them both, carrying out the boss's plan. The boss being the boyfriend of the blonde, who is the drug dealer. Bill explains everything to the police officer, only to find that Cobb has planted evidence against him, proving Bill to be wrong in the officer's eyes. Cobb kills the blonde and gets away scot-free with the murder being blamed on Bill. And the last thing we see is Cobb walking out into the street and him disappearing once a bus drives by the camera as credits roll. One of the things that hit me immediately during the film is we are in the hands of someone who is very serious about this film, about yes. creating it. And he is also very conscientious of not making certain rookie mistakes that would make this film look very cheap and very much like a student film. Now, there are certain elements that we can talk about that I think don't work, but I got to say, I'm very impressed because of the budget. The black and white looks perfect. And I'd say the acting is all around pretty good, actually. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've noted when I first watched it was the fact that it wasn't black and white. When I, Before I had you know, started watching it for my first time, I was wondering why would he shoot it in black and white? I mean, obviously because of budget constraints is one of the things, but if he had the option to shoot it in color, would he have done so? And if he had given the option or if he had the option to shoot it in color with no impact to the budget, um, I think the, the black and white aesthetic that he puts on this film works so much better than it would have ever worked in color because this is very much hearkening to noir films in the 1940s to 50s. It's very clear that that's what it's kind of touching upon. And it's more of a, now of course, it's more of a neo-noir genre, but that is the style that he's going for is a noir-esque film, very, very much in the vein of Humphrey Bogart. And it fits so well into oh, yeah. that genre. Uh, can, and I even forget this was filmed in, uh, came out in 99. Mm -hmm. I forget that because it seems like this could have came out a couple, except for a couple of anachronistic type things like that Batman symbol kind of takes me out of it. It seems weird. Yep. Otherwise, though, this film fits so well into that genre. And we have reviewed, I'd uh, go say, listen to our review of the Maltese Falcon. If you yeah. want to know our thoughts on a true noir film from that time period. Um, the other thing is Christopher Nolan is a storyteller, him and his brother are storytellers. Uh, right. Nolan is an English major, so he knows about short stories. And to me, especially with me, I've, I've written short stories before. This feels like a solid short story translated to the screen. Yeah, it definitely does. This definitely shows and lays a lot of the groundwork 
for what no one would prove that he's very, very good at later on in his career. Uh, this is very much a story that in some ways, it, it actually kind of feels like um, Quentin Tarantino's first film, um, Reservoir Dogs, uh, in a lot of ways, because they're kind of similar in the crime that happens in those films. But of course, in terms of execution, they're very, very different. So yeah, this does kind of show, you know, what exactly he's, I guess, capable of or what he, I guess what he is proud in doing is writing these kinds of stories. You're right. It is more of a short story feeling, but even though it is an hour and 10 minutes, I don't feel necessarily like that's a bad runtime for this film to have. Like it could have been shorter or whatever. It feels like this is a pretty respectable runtime for the story that he's telling. Yeah. For the story that he's telling, this is a, a proper runtime, I would say, because yeah. short stories aren't novels that jump into all of the characters' backstory. You have hints of why the characters are where they are in their present state, and we get that here in this film. But for this tight little film that we get, I think it works very well in that sense. And you also brought up Quentin Tarantino, just so happens his first film and Pulp Fiction are not particularly told in order, if I remember right. correctly. And it's interesting because this film is told out of order and his next film, Memento, is also told out of order. Right. Yeah, this would become a state, like I mentioned uh, kind of a, little bit a second ago, this telling the story out of order, the nonlinear timeline of the, of the story structure is very much a staple of Christopher Nolan. He would go on to do it in many, many, many of his later films like Batman Begins or uh, Inception that become just kind of becomes a staple of the director himself. I will say it did cause a little bit of confusion for me when I first saw this movie because I'm not quite sure what's going on because one moment our character has a haircut and then he doesn't. And then he's laying on the ground, gagged with a glove in his mouth. I'm confused in the beginning, but if you go with it, it'll all become clear. Yeah, I would say this does kind of become, I guess, easy, uh, better. He does tell this kind of nonlinear storytelling a bit better in the future. Um, this is very early on in his career, so... I'm able to forgive a little bit of kind of, I guess, muddy storytelling when it comes to jumping back and forth in time. Um, but for what we got, for what, even though this is a first time feature length director, this is very, very impressive. Seeing this nonlinear timeline kind of all kind of fit together, all these pieces, even though in the beginning, they kind of just seem like random scenes edited together. When you get to the end, they make a lot more sense. Did you get any David Lynch vibes whatsoever? Oh, yeah, I got a few David Lynch vibes, uh, kind of a little bit of Blue Velvet, I think, is one of the vibes I got. Yes, um, absolutely. That was probably the biggest vibe I got from this movie and comparing it to David Lynch. Yeah, that's my thought exactly. I will say that Christopher Nolan had to have seen <laughs> Blue Velvet when they he are, made this They movie. do feel very similar. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because Blue Velvet is way longer than this and it came out 13 years prior, right. but... This is kind of like, what if Blue Velvet was a little bit more noir, not as intense, mm -hmm. and was didn't have that wild R rating, I would say, right. and yeah. was yeah. much more based in reality. Um, because I think there is some possibility for you to think that maybe some of this stuff isn't real per se, because this guy yeah. is a writer, and maybe he's kind of blowing some things out of proportion, and it does have that twist at the end. Uh, which right. I think lends more to 
think that some things may not be quite in reality. Now, I think everything is, but I got to say, I really enjoyed the twist. And Nolan does like his twists in movies. You'll find out his are, I'd say, much more impactful and powerful than the Shyamalan twists, which are just shock factors or gotchas for the most part. Yeah. Speaking to the twist, too, I guess I guess there are kind of a a couple of twists because we found out that one, he was actually tricking uh, Cobb is tricking Bill, the main character, to frame just kind of, I guess, to get money out of him more or less. Uh, but come to find out that that's true. But at the same time, the more bigger twist here is that the is that Cobb is going to murder what the character known as the blonde, who uh, is involved with a drug dealer who's her boyfriend. That's the main twist, and that the whole murder is going to be placed onto Bill, um, and he's unknowingly going to just tell the police everything and essentially just be arrested there on the spot. So yeah, is it? It's interesting to see how this story is constructed when it comes to the placement of those reveals because. The first reveal happens about halfway through, I'd say. Um, and from then on, we kind of just get to see how our main character tries to do more, I guess, damage control for the rest of the film until it eventually comes to a head. And we find out that the policeman that he was talking to from the beginning is actually the very end of the film. And he was explaining everything that was happening up until that point where he's essentially re- arrested right there talking to the police officer. I kind of like that idea or the how he tells the story, especially in the second half where uh, the main character is just on a downward spiral, even though he's trying to fix it. It's not on his own volition. It's something that's being done to him. I do like that as well, that it calls into question, who do you trust and how easily do you trust people and their motives? And I think that does a good job of depicting that even he's going to the police. He's trying to do the right thing and trust them as well. But because of these outside circumstances, the police said we can't find any of this evidence you're talking about. And it appears you are our prime suspect for this as well. Right. And I really do like that. The one thing that I will say is I think Nolan relies on this twist a bit too much. He puts a little too much stock in it instead of us relying more so on the characters. Because I would say plot wise, we're not giving anything particularly compelling to care about since this loner writer doesn't have a backstory. We're not given enough time to truly develop any kind of emotional relationship between him and the blonde. And even given them these lack of, and they're not really given uh, names per se. It's just the blonde and Cobb. And I guess you said the writer's name is Bill. Yeah. He mentions it. uh, Cobb asks him his name when they first meet and he says his name is Bill. Uh, it's, it looks like the credits say that his name is just the young man. Right. Um, but according to him, his name is Bill. Yeah. And I would say that didn't help me connect with the characters very well because halfway through the movie, I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, the main character, what's his name? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And even the gangster is somewhat of a red herring threat. Um, yet he does cause the downfall of the blonde. So. In some ways, I was a bit disappointed we didn't have a bit more character depth. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think one of that's probably its weakest uh, point is how it uh, builds its characters because you're right, they're kind of blank slates. We only get a first name from them, if that. Uh, The drug dealer boyfriend kind of seems a little bit out of place in, and when, especially when it gets that ending twist. He's brought up here and there, but he doesn't feel like he's ever like 
a main factor in the story. I think the reason why I have, uh, have, I don't think these characters are very good is because I think no one is relying solely on his story rather than on his, more on his characters. These characters are there more to tell the story than they are to actually be characters. That kind of makes them blank slates. And it gets to the point where Cobb and Bill are the two main characters. But then you've also got the drug dealer boyfriend who is kind of absent for most of it. He doesn't really become an important player until the very, very end. And then you've got the blonde who is kind of in the same boat, although she has a bit more of a, a bit, bit more to do in the story, but not enough, I would say. I think she kind of gets the short end of the stick because they're all kind of blank slates, but she feels like she's a very important character, almost as important as our two mains, but she's not given nearly as much depth or much as much screen time for her to build up uh, that importance and play a more prominent role in the story. And one of the important things to remember is all of these characters are using each other for one means or the other. They're all trying to set each other up for some reason or make one of them fall in love with the other in order to sabotage them somehow. And I really like that. I think Nolan has the ground for a great story. If he probably could have had the budget or... I don't know, maybe even time to further expand this. I think this could have been much stronger, but you know, for a first film, and like we said, he, he's got a budget of $6,000. Yep. 6,000. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's going to severely limit your time, your actor's time. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into, I would say why this is more limited. I think he shows strong writing potential here to begin with. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, I'd I'd say his best days are yet to come. But for this time, uh, the other thing is I'd say there is some great camera work. Okay, but sometimes there is some very mediocre first time camera work. Um, Here's a particular example when the young man is escaping with the money and he hits the guy over the head with a hammer. And then we just get that close up shot of the guy's face bleeding. I'm like, oh, that is such an amateur shot. Like that was totally unnecessary. Yeah, and I get that could also be just due to the fact that he was trying to limit himself as much as possible, trying to get everything down to one to two takes. Uh, so I'm, I wonder if that has a significant uh, or is, is a significant reason as to why some of this looks a little bit more amateur. But I agree with you. There are some things in this that are definitely uh, more akin to new filmmakers um, on what they tend to do. But story-wise, I think the strongest point of this entire movie is its story. Maybe not its characters, Maybe not it's, it's necessarily it's how it looks, although it does look very good for a first film. Its strongest point to me is its story that it tells and how it tells that story, I think, is what Nolan was definitely going for. The only thing is I I don't I only start to really care about the story towards the very end of the film and yeah. everything starts to make sense. Because right. no, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Up until a certain point, I'd say around the 45 minute mark, honestly, I was beginning to doze a little bit because I'm not really sure the purpose of the story, but it's kind of one of those films where it's like you have to watch it till the end yep. and then go back and rewatch the movie for it all to be clear what's exactly going on here. Exactly. Uh, the other thing is, I think the score is a little wonky at times. Yeah, for this movie and for a couple of his newer films, the score is. It's not Hans Zimmer, <laughs> but it, it isn't. It is something that's very, very strange. We, we've kind of noted some. In it seems to be in indie films, the score tends to be more on the weirder side, more or less. We noted that with uh, Krisha, all although I think we had more of a, I think we tended to like that one more. 
um, score-wise. This one, it does have an interesting score. It's not played in, it's not a, I guess, a very important role in the story as what would happen, I guess, in some of his later films. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Following? Following was one of the last known films that I was able to see going through his entire roster. Uh, at the time, I hadn't seen everything, but I had seen mostly everything. And this is one of the last films that I saw um, of his. Seeing where he began, I can definitely see the groundwork that he's laid for himself, that he would later, in my experience, improve upon and become a master in that kind of filmmaking. And we'll talk about that in later sequels. But for a first film, it's still very, very impressive. In fact, we've talked about a few first-time directors in their very first films being very impressive. Uh, once again, Damien Chazelle is a great example of this. So in terms of what he is showing that he is able to do, I think it's a great movie. But in terms, but looking outside of that and looking at it as an actual film, I think that there are definitely some things that you know, aren't as strong as what he would later become or as they could be. The story is, I think, a good story, but one that does have a bit of trouble being told because of the nonlinear storytelling. The characters are kind of bland. Some of them don't make really a whole lot of sense as to why they're in the story. So there are definite problems here, but at the same time, for a first picture, very, very impressive, especially to show off, you know, what no one is really good at doing, and that is nonlinear storytelling. So at the end of the day, I still very much enjoy it. I'll probably end up getting it on the getting a criterion of it so I can watch the chronological cut. Six out of ten. Uh, I'll give it actually a, a pretty solid recommend. I think it's a very good, very interesting picture to see, not only for uh first-time filmmakers, but also people who want to see where Christopher Nolan began. Young 28-year-old Christopher Nolan's first foray into cinema shows a strong desire for crafting an intriguing story with surprising character motivations and twists. His use of black and white perfectly fits in with his noir predecessors of the 40s and 50s. Some of the close-up handheld work comes across a bit amateurish, but thankfully he knows how to smartly frame a shot. Also, no one can really knock him for pacing, considering this film clocks in at a very untheatrical length of only 70 minutes. For a first-time director working off a shoestring budget, this is one of the most impressive freshman films I've ever seen. While his slim duration sacrifices some character death, I'm sure his following efforts will improve upon that. Following receives 6 stars out of 10, with the mild recommend. And for me, it is a definite pickup. Pick up or yep. pass, I'm going to pick this up on the Criterion Collection. Yep, I would definitely be picking this one up. I really do want to see that chronological cut i've heard that the chronological cut of this movie is not great mm -hmm. um which i can i can understand why i feel like this movie was uh edited in such a way and written in such a way where it was supposed to be non-linear and nothing else but i do want to see what it looks i do want to see it uh in its chronological cut i'm very, very curious about that i would be curious as well i was listening to now playing his review of this stewart said he has the criterion collection and watched it chronologically and he said kind of what you were saying, Alan, some of the things just don't work chronologically. Yeah. Some of the surprises are ruined. And this story is framed specifically to keep certain things hidden from you mm -hmm. until the very end. But nevertheless, I definitely want to see it chronologically and check out some of those special features as well. Yeah. Next right. week. Next I'm week. I'm very, very excited for next week because next week is a film that... For people who have seen it, absolutely, they absolutely love it. 
I am completely excited next week to watch Memento. I have never seen it before. It is brand new to me. It's one of those movies everyone has seen but me. So <laughs> I'm glad to say I'll finally be able to watch it and bring you our in-depth thoughts about it. Memento, it's this is its 19th anniversary. It's coming on 20 years now. That's true. It's yeah, it is really old. Wow. Yeah, I have seen Memento. I also watched this one in college, too. Um, I'll talk about my thoughts on that one when we get into the podcast, because they are kind of interesting when I first watched it. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with Memento. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.